You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 537 of this podcast. Today is Friday, January 13th, 2023. And we've got a lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover in this podcast episode. At the end, we will have talked a bit about meditations on Moloch and a certain long uh, episode of Bankless Shows on YouTube that was sent to me by my cousin, Micah Hirschberger, titled, Why Can't We Have Nice Things, featuring and... uh, (laughs) I guess, centered on the thoughts of a certain Liv Boiry. I think I'm saying her name right, Boiry. Uh, but first, we have uh, a little bit of current events and the news to get to. And this is how I like to roll, is we'll bring in some talk of what is actually happening or is purportedly happening in the country or in Uh, the state of Colorado or in my neck of the woods, Greeley, Colorado specifically. And then we'll talk uh, a bit more in the abstract, not just be theoretical, not just be practical in a narrow sense, but both end. The theory should inform the practice. The practice should then also uh, modify the theory if what was expected is not what actually happens. But in my house, let's start in my own home tonight being Friday night, we have biblical training group happening again in my house. We have uh, Fridays typically so far uh, dedicated to trying to get the house ready, trying to make sure that uh, we're going to be good hosts, uh, things are clean, and then decaf coffee and creamer are ready and some treats and the laptop set up in the living room with the TV plugged in and all that. And uh, I, I pre-watch each one of the lectures so that I have some idea of what Gary Brashears is going to get into in A Guide to Christian Theology at biblicaltraining.org. You can find a whole lot of courses, free courses, from seminary professors, acclaimed Bible teachers, for free. If you would like to delve into a particular uh, question or topic or subject in theology, go over to biblicaltraining.org and check out what they have to offer. It's been really good for our group. It's been good for my family. It's been good for me. It's been good for the soul to be more intentional and systematic in considering who is God and what are the implications. There are a lot of implications for that question being answered. Now, as I mentioned in last uh, the, the the last episode of this podcast, I was recently listening to uh, a, a discussion between Douglas Murray and Tom Holland, not the actor who plays Spider-Man, but uh, an author and historian of books such as Dominion and The Forge of Christendom. I haven't gotten to Dominion yet, but it's in my uh, reading list for this year. Forge of Christendom, I have read, and it's quite good. Uh, And then also Stephen Meyer, author of uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis, 
uh, for one thing, also Darwin's delusion. But this discussion, uh, you know, it was all predicated on the question of does God exist? And actually, you can't help but get into the implications for God's existence uh, being, you know, affirmed on the one hand, being denied on the other hand, uh, or as Douglas Murray camps out uh, in an agnostic conclusion, we just can't know. And we need to be comfortable just saying, I don't know. Uh, you know, the implications are far reaching on the macro, on the civilizational level. The implications also on a personal level and an interpersonal level. Those really are where you get the macro effects, the civilizational or global effects. They come from the personal. And so we have to start with the personal. We have to start in our own home. And thus, I will pre-watch Lesson 10 of A Guide to Christian Theology. Tonight's uh, is Freedom, Sovereignty, and Election. So that should generate a lot of very uh, engaging, interesting conversation surrounding Arminian thought and Calvinistic thought pertaining to do we have free will, or uh, as the Calvinist would say, what will man, apart from God's grace, choose? If he's free to choose, uh, that that is not to be assumed, particularly given his slavery to sin and to death. God has to put the faith into him, and who God chooses to put faith into is entirely up to God. But the Arminian would disagree and say, no, God has put the ability to choose into all of us, even if we have a sin problem, we have the freedom to choose. That's default. The debate, to my way of thinking, is when does God put the ability to choose into us? Is that common to all of us? Uh, you know, in a more level playing field sort of a way? Or is that only for the elect? God only puts the ability to choose into the elect. Um, if I had to choose, right? If I had to choose, and uh, not do kind of a Douglas Murray uh, sort of a treatment to Calvinism and Arminianism, I would, choo I would choose Calvinism because there's just no getting around that God does give us the ability to choose. But then uh, where I get a little bit uh, murky and I'm not ready to claim more certainty than I actually uh, possess or feel or hold to, uh, you know, the, that debate of when does God put the ability to choose into us? And also, what are the implications for God foreknowing all that will be, for choosing those who will be saved? Uh, you know, what are the implications that God knew and predestined his saints to do good works from before the creation of the world, before the foundations of the world? What are the implications well, there's no getting around the fact that there are implications. Uh, there are implications if you say, well, we get to choose to believe in God and we're free to choose. And therefore, we have to be very persuasive with one another. There's no getting around the implications if you say it's all predetermined by God. And he really is the one who chooses to let me choose uh, on an individual basis. And also there are implications if you say, well, I just don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure, and I trust that however it works, God knows, and 
I, I just trust that God is doing it and that God has that figured out. But that'll be an interesting discussion. That'll be good. I'll pre-watch it just myself and then come up with an outline with some questions to generate some discussion. And then we will have uh, whoever is able to make it tonight uh, with us and we will go over the material again. It'll be a second time for me, but we will go through the discussion questions and uh, and by God's grace, we will be thinking more rightly, more biblically uh, in, a, in a truer way about not just the fact that God exists in the abstract, but since God exists, who is he and what can we know about God? What can we understand about God? What does God want us to understand and give us the ability to understand about himself in his word? But moving on, uh, I have actually a, a clip to play for you of a, um, I guess, a, a little dust up at the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, this clip I'm about to play for you has everything to do with a t-shirt that, uh, just judging by the accent, I would guess uh, this uh, African-American immigrant from Africa to America, uh, was wearing in the Mall of America. And the front of the shirt says, Jesus saves. The back of the shirt has that coexist bumper sticker with a line diagonally across it, like it's being X'd out. And then the words, Jesus is the only way. And so he's wearing this, he's walking around, he gets stopped by the uh, security guards at the Mall of America and here's how that goes. Here's how the discussion plays out. I understand that, right. but Jesus is associated with religion and it's offending people. No, it's not just the religion. I'm sorry, it's not the religion. It's about, it's about the eternal life. Okay, but it's the same thing, okay? People have been offended. And like I said, all we were asking you is to take your shirt off. You can go to Macy, go with the I didn't say anything, though. I didn't speak. I didn't, I didn't speak. I didn't, I didn't say anything. Just went okay. to Macy's. Shirt in the form of solicitor, and we've had guests come up saying that they've been offended by your shirt. Who 
So here's the backstory as far as I know it. This guy, he's wearing a Jesus Saves t-shirt. He is confronted by security at Mall of America because supposedly someone has complained that they're offended by his t-shirt. He's told, take off the t-shirt and you can keep on shopping. You can stay or leave or we're going to make you leave. And he objects. He argues his case or he asks, okay, what's so offensive about it? And they don't really answer that question except to say that it represents religious soliciting. So that is, you are proselytizing. You are here trying to encourage other people to be Christians or to become Christians. That will not be tolerated. As John Knox over at Not The Bee points out, uh, and and (laughs) he puts it in uh, maybe an indirect way, I'll say it more bluntly, uh, this would not happen if the African-American gentleman were wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt or if he were wearing uh, a t-shirt with an Islamic message. He would not have been complained about, probably, because people would be too afraid to complain. Uh, And also, people are just not offended by Black Lives Matter and Islam the way that they are by Christianity in our day. But also, if they did complain, if they did complain to mall security, Mall security would have just dismissed them and said, it's just a T-shirt. In the case of the Christian message on a T-shirt, however, it is acceptable to discriminate against Christians because Christians supposedly are what's wrong with the world. That's the de facto attitude and assumption today in America. There's a link in the not to be post of this video and some of the reactions on Twitter, which I actually find more interesting than the reactions on Twitter. There's a piece at First Things Magazine from February of last year by Aaron M. Wren titled The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And I'll just share with you briefly what he calls the three distinct stages of American secularization. First of all, you've got positive world pre-1994 and Aaron Wren writes, society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good church-going man remains part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. Okay, so that's positive world. That was pre-1994. That was, you know, up until I was about eight years of age, uh, that's where America was at, positive world. Christianity is a net good, and being a Christian is uh, a status enhancer. In 1994, though, from 94 to 2014, we transitioned into neutral world. And Aaron Wren writes regarding neutral world, society takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but is not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Christian moral norms retain some residual effect. So if I may, to put it more briefly, people shrug. 
you say you're a Christian, people shrug. Yeah, okay, fine. You can be that's you know, you can be a Christian. That's one way to live your life. But other people believe different things and so what? Who cares? Negative world, however, negative world is where we're at right now, according to this way of looking at secularization in the United States. 2014 to the present, Aaron Wren writes, society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences, like, for instance, being embarrassed, humiliated, confronted, threatened in the public square, in the Mall of America, and told either take the shirt off or get out, or we will get you out. Uh, This is where it goes next. And I've been talking about this. I've been talking about this for years in relation to big tech censorship of Christians and conservatives, and the two really should be uh, synonymous online. Rightly understood, if you rightly understand Christianity and you rightly understand conservatism, the two really should go hand in glove. But this is the next step because censoring Christians on the internet is easy, but it's not enough. And if the pre-commitment to shutting the offensive Christians up uh, is held to, if that does not vary or that does not get moderated backwards, then it will escalate into more and more extreme and disturbing uh, hostility against Christianity and against Christians. Right now, it's a t-shirt, okay? In this example, it's a t-shirt. But mark my words, it won't be enough to tell Christians to take off the shirt or leave. The next thing will be that you are even just a Christian having a conversation with somebody. But even there, I mean, he, he, it sounds like had been preaching in the food court. And that's not a super shocking thing to me that he would get asked to leave if he's standing there preaching. Now, if he goes, though, and he is talking with people about Jesus in the public square, and it's even just a private conversation that somebody else uh, catches, and they hear, and they start it into an argument instead of a conversation, then that too, that you know, whether he's wearing paraphernalia, whether he's disturbing uh, everybody, someone will take offense and then it will be a disturbance. It's a, it becomes a disturbance when someone is so upset and so offended and they're having a strong display of emotions. And that's how we know who is right or who has been victimized, who has been wronged, who has been oppressed. The strong show of emotions, the one showing the strong emotions and getting all upset will not be the one in trouble. The Christian who supposedly provoked those strong emotions will always invariably be the one who gets in more and more and more trouble. And the worse things get, the more you will have, I think, Christians uh, basically saying, okay, you know what? God has called me to testify to his goodness. And because I love my neighbor as I love myself, I have to share the gospel with my neighbor. But That's going to get people increasingly upset. And if something, like I said, if something doesn't moderate the trajectory that we are on, if we don't change course as a people, as a nation, 
then it will terminate as it always has in every other time and place throughout history. It will terminate in the violent persecution of Christians, and it will be seen as acceptable. It will it will be seen as justified and warranted to violently attack and even kill Christians because they have disturbed the peace. They have upset other people. They have disrupted the public square as it is seen. Never mind that what they are saying and what they are doing didn't disturb the public square at all 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It upsetting the public square moving forward when the pre-commitment is to everybody being calm, being peaceable, getting along, feeling safe, having a safe space, feeling equally respected regardless of their life choices or what they believe or what they say or what they do, uh, that that will be seen as the highest good above which uh, no other good can be conceived. That will become the, the new God. You know, and, and we have more to say. We have more to say regarding that, but I'm going to save it for right now and we'll move on to a couple of other uh, current events, news items. So hold your horses, <laughs> hold your horses. <laughs> uh Speaking of double standards, Virginia Cruda over at the Daily Wire published a piece yesterday. The Biden classified documents just keep coming. And John Kennedy has just four questions. And I won't read the article for you. You can definitely go and uh, look this up. If you haven't heard about it, you probably have. It's been very much in the headlines uh, this week that it turns out the exact thing that has uh, Trump, Donald Trump, former president Donald Trump, being investigated, and uh, you know, it, it it had the FBI in an unprecedented move, and in a nakedly political, banana republic way, raiding Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's home in Florida. The same exact thing that had the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago, it turns out, Joe Biden is guilty of. If it is a crime then they're both guilty. If it is not a crime, well, then why were they going after Trump? So here is a little video uh, clip. Uh, you'll just get the audio. I'm sorry. But uh, here's a little bit from Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, Republican, on Fox, talking about this. Take a listen. Well, I, I just find all of this surreal. It, it's... Um... It's almost like watching a Quentin Tarantino movie. I, I suppose my first thought is that uh, all of this is yet one more example of why in Washington, D.C., if it were not for double standards, there wouldn't be any standards at all. Uh, I'm not surprised that the attorney general has appointed a special counsel. I'm not sure he had a choice. Um, the White House has tried, and the White House doesn't have enough hazmat suits to clean up this mess, aside from the obvious that uh, the Justice Department is investigating President Trump for something that President Biden himself may have done. There are a lot of other intriguing questions for the inspector general. Number one, was there a cover-up? Um, uh, the powers that be have known about all this since November 2nd. It's now the middle of January. Was there a cover-up? Who was involved? Number two, what's the role of the University of Pennsylvania uh, Biden Center in all of this? The, uh, 
The Penn Biden Center is not some normal Ivy League think tank. It was, we now know that it's in Washington, D.C. It was a hangout, a clubhouse for President Biden and his people before they were inaugurated. And allegedly, it is funded with tens of millions of dollars uh, from China. What, what's up with that? Um, number three, what's the role of the National Archives in all of this? The, the National Archives was scathingly critical of President Trump and his documents. Uh, they've known about all this since November 2nd or 3rd. Um, they've been missing in action with respect to President Biden and his documents. You, 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 uh, you couldn't have found them with a search party. We still haven't heard from them. What's up with that? And I guess my fourth question is, um, did any member of Congress know about this? I didn't. And if some of my colleagues knew mm -hmm. about it, I'd, I'd like to know why I didn't. Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana with the memorable turn of phrase, as always, if they didn't have double standards, they wouldn't have any standards at all. Uh, that's fair. Uh, that is fair. You know, it's it's surreal, I think, if our presumption is uh, that there will be a consistency in the standards applied. It's surreal if we are presuming fair play and if we haven't read Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. I personally have read Rules for Radicals. It's dedicated to Lucifer, the first radical, as he calls him. Uh, it is dedicated to Lucifer from the jump because their morality is power. Power is their morality. They determine right and wrong, good and evil, based on what gets them more power or helps them to keep power on the left, period. Full stop. Thanks for playing. That's the consistency. The consistency is what gets them power. And as such, you can, you can know. You can know that this is not the end. This is the beginning. This is the sign of more to come. And this is what happens in negative world. It is the other side of the coin to a hostility toward Christian faith in the public square. This is the other side of the coin. You push out an objective standard and what you will get is a subjective and case by case. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Even what's true for me can vary. Uh, depending on whether I'm doing it or whether you're doing it, what you get is anti-Christianity. You get a spirit of antichrist. That's what we are contending with at the highest levels. This is, you know, not, not, uh, you know, not to say that I think Rome, uh, with the death of the uh, former Pope here recently, has clean hands just because, Biden was not invited or he was uninvited. He was not welcome at the funeral. Um, but it is to say that that took some people by surprise. Like, oh, can't we have our cake and eat it too? Can't we have all of these things at the same time where Biden claims to be a devout Catholic, but also is for transgenderism, which is an abomination to God, according to his word. Uh, he's for homosexuality, even though that's an abomination to God, according to God's word. He's for abortion, even though, as we'll be talking about Moloch 
here a little later. That's an abomination to God. Now, oh, can't he be a devout Catholic and also upend all of Christian teaching with regards to ethics and morality regarding murder and sex? Can't he be a devout Catholic and also be completely lawless and lead the free world into slavery to sin? Can't he be a devout Catholic and that? No. He's an anti-Catholic, actually. He's a mockery. He's a a parody. He is a death work. First Things has a lot of really good content. Another piece I would recommend to you is The Church Among the Death Works by Carl Truman from October 21st, 2021, in which Truman references this concept of death works. What is a death work? It is, in short, taking the previous ages symbols and then retooling them in the current age so as to destroy their meaning and their value and their importance, their sacredness in this age. So, for instance, pictured, the feature image uh, on this piece at First Things is the front end of a high church sanctuary with a rainbow flag above uh, the centerpiece. A rainbow flag, not because they're trying to remind everyone that God promised to never destroy all life on earth again with a flood. The rainbow here to affirm homosexuality, transgenderism, bisexuality, queerness, uh, and as I keep saying, stay tuned because any minute now, pedophilia as well. This is a death work. It is a symbol of negative world in America that Joe Biden says he's a devout Catholic and is diametrically opposed to the teachings of the church for 2,000 years and counting regarding morality. He is a man of lawlessness, and he's leading and directing and mandating and requiring that our entire government here in the U.S. and other governments around the world join with him in this project of destroying a respect for God and a respect for God's commands. He is a an embodiment of death work and promoting more of the same. But the finding of these documents in his residence at a think tank hangout place, which if true, uh, that China has uh, funded this thing. Um, I mean, is that not potentially a instance of domestic espionage? Uh, is that potentially a situation where you're going to have classified documents at a think tank that China has part ownership of to where China then has access to those documents. Is that a potential here? Uh, Senator Kennedy is alluding to as much, but even if it is right, even if that is what it turns out to be, what will happen? Well, the same thing that would happen if someone wearing a black lives matter t-shirt or an Islamic uh, <laughs> message t-shirt at mall of America was complained about the same thing will happen where the, the mall cop will shrug the equivalent of the mall cop in our justice system w- will shrug 
I think, I predict. And, and the truth is that if we, can't, if we can't go back, if we can't turn away from negative world, it is the end of America. Uh, it, it is. If we can turn back, well, then America will never be the same. It will never look quite like it did. And the point was not, uh, you know, in the 18th century that America was so good because it was America in the 18th century. America was great up until fairly recently because America was good. And here I say good in the same sense that God found Noah to be righteous in his generation. Not that Noah was morally perfect and flawless and didn't have his mistakes or didn't ever do anything that was incorrect or bad. Noah was righteous in his generation by grace through faith. And if we can turn back from negative world, turn toward being righteous, a righteous nation, righteousness exalts a nation. That must mean that it is possible for a nation to embrace righteousness. If we can turn back to that and away from negative world, well, then there's the capacity to write some of these things. But if the underlying premise, the underlying presupposition holds true, uh, then it just gets worse from here. It just gets worse and worse. Moving on, Joseph McKinnon over at The Blaze published a piece this morning highlighting Joe Rogan talking about George Soros. And here's a quote. It's like he wants these cities to fall apart. He wants crime to flourish. Talking about the investment that has been uh, put into races for district attorneys uh, across the U.S., Joe Rogan wonders if it is actually the point to take America down by interfering with law enforcement, meaningful law enforcement, so that criminals run amok in the U.S. He wonders if that isn't the point. I think, uh, yes, I think that is the point. I think that this is a kind of asymmetrical warfare being waged against the United States of America. This is also of a piece with us living in negative world right now. A little clip from this episode is included in the write-up over at The Blaze. I'll play it for you. You can take a listen. We might have to bleep a few things out, but uh, bear with me. Here's Joe Rogan and Mike Baker talking about George Soros. How old is George Soros? It's a good question. Yeah. Is he, he's like a vampire. Right? I had a conversation with the governor of Texas about him, but mm-hmm. with Greg Abbott, where mm-hmm. he was explaining to me what George Soros does. And it's fucking terrifying that he donates money to a very progressive, very leftist, uh, whether it's a DA or whatever politician, and then funds someone who's even further left than them to go against them mm-hmm. and just keeps moving it along. So he's playing like a global game. And that he he enjoys doing it. Yeah, he enjoys doing it, um, but it is – it's telling, right? He understood early on where you wanted to seize power, Mm -hmm. right? And and that's – you know, we sometimes think, oh, I'm going to – you know, a senator is – that's the pinnacle of success. Well, it's not really (laughs) – you know, it's the it's the DAs and it's the it's the state level politicians. Right. So that's where real change occurs and where things can happen. And before you know it, it's like what 
or real yeah. corrosion. Or real corrosion. Right, That's right. what's scary is yeah. it seems like he funds corrosion. It's like he wants these cities to fall apart. He he wants crime to flourish. It's, yeah. it's almost like he's an evil person in a Batman movie. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? Well, he, I mean, he, he made his real fortune by almost busting the Bank of England, right? Mm-hmm. So he's not – yeah, this, this guy is not uh, – you know, he's not out there for truth and justice. And he's right? got to be deep into his 80s. Oh, 92. 92. So you got to wonder, wow. like, what keeps that guy motivated? As McKinnon explains and uh, elaborates in his piece over at The Blaze, and I quote, facing criticism over his alleged hand in destabilizing American cities, Soros penned an opinion piece in July displacing blame. In the piece, he claimed that recent crime spikes in Democrat-controlled cities weren't the result of his beneficiaries' failures, but of a disturbing rise in mental illness among young people, a pullback in policing in the wake of public criminal justice reform protests, and increases in gun trafficking, end quote. And all that is to say, don't believe your lying eyes. And uh, oddly, uh, to my... (laughs) way of thinking, my way of looking at it. If your picks for DAs and such, if they are not corresponding to a reduction in crime or a reduction in mental illness, and these two things are very closely related, if they're not corresponding to, correlated with a reduction in crime and mental illness in these cities, then why do you keep putting money into these DA races? Or what benefit, what point uh, of, of uh, improvement can you draw our attention to with these DAs? How are they making these cities better? How are they improving the situation? Or if we see a sudden spike in crime and mental illness and a degradation of the condition of American cities in time with you putting money into these DA races in American cities all over America, well then, um, sorry, there has to be a correlative relationship. And I know what it is. We know what it is. Joe Rogan knows what it is. Mike Baker, former CIA agent, uh, knows what it is. It's very, very clear. But see, this is part of the problem, I think, with politics on the right and the left, is that if we are only putting forward candidates who we think are going to win and the debate has been framed and defined by the George Soros types, by the big tech giants, by the constraining of the imagination due to negative world as we live in uh, you know, a negative world now, if that's where we are stuck in putting forward candidates who are going to be better, we don't want to put forward those candidates because we don't think they can win. It's just going to get worse and worse, right? Because the the conservative candidates, the Republican candidates, if they're only going to get money based on whether we think they can beat the Soros-backed candidate who's getting lots of money from Soros, um, you know, it's a chicken and egg dilemma. And what interrupts that cycle? Only the grace of God and only turning away from negative world, not even back to neutral world. Neutral world was a mirage. It was a intermediary stage. Nature abhors a vacuum. It it was not possible to be 
neutral with regards to Christianity, even though it was kind of sort of tried. It actually was a rejection of Christianity, albeit in a softer form. And right now, if we think this is negative world, what are we going to have for a term with where we're going next? We're going to say it's hyper negative world. No, it's it's you're either for me or against me, as Jesus says. That is a bipolar option. That's a binary option. You're either for me or against me. If we are not for Jesus, then we are against Jesus. And even if we're putting forward supposedly conservative candidates, but they are not for Jesus, then they're going to be complicit. They are going to be part of the problem. They're not going to be part of the solution. They're going to vote for things like the codifying of gay marriage, the codifying of Roe v. Wade, or at a minimum, at a minimum, they will stand back and let it happen. They'll wash their hands of it like Pontius Pilate. That's what we will get is somebody asking, you know, with an R behind their name, what is truth? But moving on, lest we run out of time camping out on George Soros. Not the Beast staff posted yesterday uh, a little bit of information, which I find helpful. And I quote, I have to note that only one Democrat voted for a bill yesterday that would protect babies born alive after botched abortions. For those who suppose that there is no difference between Democrats and Republicans, I give you this. And they ask the question, not the B staff asks, does anyone in the Democratic Party care anymore? We talked about Dems' reaction to the new bill that the House passed yesterday that would require medical care for infants that survived an abortion. And the word that they use is detrimental. The Democrats, their official line here is that they are opposing this bill, and I quote, because it could be detrimental to the life of the baby to require medical care for abortion surviving infants. It could be detrimental to the life of the baby. This is an extension of negative world that it's opposite. It is opposite day. Providing care for a baby who survives the abortion could be detrimental to the life of the baby. In other words, we don't want this baby to live knowing they survived an abortion. All the reasons why the abortion was attempted are all, you know, even more. We just added to them because the abortion was attempted and it didn't succeed. Now you've really got to terminate the life of this unborn child. This is satanic. This is satanic. Those who hate wisdom, love death. Those who hate God, love death. Here's the proof of it. On a lighter note, though, let's simmer down a little bit. The Denver Post has a piece published just this morning, actually, 6 a.m., John Aguilar. Golden's workers can't afford to live there, but first ever homeownership project offers hope. City commits to applying for $3 million in DOLA state grant for affordable housing project. Now, here's the irony. The irony is that the reason housing is so unaffordable is because our government can't stop spending money it doesn't have or spending money that we really uh, should have and should be able to keep for ourselves. They can't stop spending money that they don't have. And so their solution is going to be to spend even more money that they don't have trying to fix the problems that are caused by them spending money that they don't have in the first place, taking money out of the economy, filtering it through several middlemen, and then finally putting it back into the economy and then saying, 
Oh, see, aren't we very generous? Yeah, but you, you took that from me, took your little cut, and then gave it back. No, that's not generosity. And again, as with the rest, it will just spiral down and become uh, worse and worse a problem. They might have people in Golden, which is this touristy place and where the Colorado School of Mines is. They might have more workers, but the idea is to have workers. They want workers to keep up appearances. They're going to put money into Golden and house ownership in Golden because that's a value. They will be taking it from somewhere else, making housing even less affordable in those other places in Colorado. Mark my words, this is going to make the housing problem in Colorado even worse. If the Democrats could break their addiction to spending money that they don't have or spending we the people's money, if they could break that addiction and stop voting themselves largesse, then we could start to work our way out of this problem, building houses. Now, right now, I would love to afford a house. And do you know the number one reason that I can't, I cannot, despite making more money than I've ever made in my life, it has everything to do with inflation and taxes, but I repeat myself. It has everything to do with inflation and taxes. It has everything to do with what the Democrats' policies have uh, <laughs> harmed in the supply and demand mechanics in our economy. They've incentivized vice. They've disincentivized work. We have fewer products and services in the economy relative to the money circulating in the economy. Therefore, even though I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life, it's not that much more. And the cost of everything is going up. The cost of food, the cost of utilities, the cost of fuel, the cost of just everyday household items, clothes, books, tools. Everything is more expensive because the Democrats keep on spending your money and my money on wild harebrained notions to fix the problems that they create by spending our money that they shouldn't have in the first place, not in these quantities. There are some things that government should do with our money. There are core functions of government that are good for our government to do. But if our government doesn't know right from wrong, if it doesn't admit and recognize that it is a minister of God, like Romans 13 says, then it just plays God. Absent God, it plays God or it worships other gods. And those other gods ultimately not only fail to deliver, but do a lot of damage instead of delivering because, hey, watch this. See what I can do just because they can. Speaking of technology and finding solutions for problems that will actually make the problems worse, as I reckon, Harambe over at Not The Bee has a post from yesterday. This company wants to plant a computer chip in your head to treat depression. Basically, they're going to try and improve on the idea of antidepressants. Antidepressants are little more effective than sugar pills. They're little better than placebo, in part because very often depression is a matter of your thought life, your spiritual condition, your life choices, bad circumstances that you are stuck in, you are a slave to because you need Jesus and you don't have Jesus. Other times, 
These are environmental factors caused by other people who refuse to allow you to change your circumstances, improve your circumstances, and that's frustrating. It delays the uh, achievement that should be associated with hard work, and it causes frustration. It causes despair. When injustice increases, the people groan. And that's why I think giving somebody a pill to (laughs) treat their depression, especially if it makes their underlying factors that are causing them to be depressed even worse, because now they're just... Uh, you know, foggy instead of clear-headed to be able to tackle these challenges. Uh, What they're going to do is they're going to experiment on humans putting a chip in that will hack your neural uh, uh, synapses and and whatnot to just basically uh, tweak the, the, the brain to think that it's happy. Mark my words, for the same reasons that antidepressants uh, are inadvisable in most cases, I would say. Not at all, but in most cases, particularly as a long-term solution attempt, this is going to be as bad or worse. If it's more effective, you know, in the ways that they're hoping it will be more effective, I think it will be more effective in making the underlying problems worse. That's my prediction. Uh, Also, it's, it's concerning that we would put a device uh, in place, as they're calling it, the prescription pod, that they would put this implant in place uh, and say, this is for your own good, or this is going to help you. I would say that man is not inherently good, and this will be used to control people like robots. If I can boil it down to just a very, very simple statement, I think this is going to be used to control human beings who are troublesome like robots. And if they get just way out of line, impossible to control, some people will use this uh, and develop this into a a disabling mechanism. We'll we'll put it that way, to neutralize. You know, if if they can't actively neutralize you, they'll use it as a straitjacket or they'll just terminate you. If we can abort babies and justify that in our minds, well, then it's just a question of when it becomes uh, a, a greater benefit than cost as the people playing God see it to just start eliminating people if we're not already there. And I think I think we might be. As for our main topic, though, our main subject, the main course, all the rest were appetizers and hors d'oeuvres. Now let's talk about bankless shows on YouTube and they're inviting Liv Bori, former professional poker player, master of game theory, systems thinker, keen understander of the world of complex systems and the human experience, to talk about Molech. I'm going to play a little bit of audio from a video that she shot, kind of um, explaining or promoting this idea of Molech. They're seeing Molech as a psychological projection but they are also borrowing the name for an old ancient Canaanite deity that when God gives Canaanites uh, into the hands of Israel, gives the land of Canaan, which had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants forever, uh, when he gives the promised land to Israel, he explicitly says, you shall not offer 
your children to me in the fire like the nations I drove out before you did to Moloch. But we're borrowing this name for the Canaanite deity to try to explain a certain way of relating to competition, which is seen as dysfunctional. Here is Liv Bwari personifying or play-acting at being Molech, and take a listen. Hello, gorgeous. My name is Moloch. Moloch. <laughs> now, you might not have heard of me, but you've most certainly felt me. For I am the force behind fortune, the power behind progress, and the shaper of all success. And what a success even you could be, if you just listen to me. For I alone know what it takes to win, to be the most adored and the most beautiful. And you do want all those things, don't you? Yes. Well, listen close, because there are things you can do to tweak reality. Weapons you can use to crush your enemies. And you better use them, because if you don't, your enemies are going to use them to crush you. I want to win. You see, in the end, the world wants winners, not losers. And life, it isn't just a game, it's war! And you get the idea. So, there is Liv Bury. And I, I don't know that I recommend this video for everybody. Um, it's long. It's an hour and 39 minutes long. But I will say that this is the first I've heard of it. These guys typically talk about cryptocurrency and decentralized finance and Web 3.0 and also to everything that will be affected by those things, which is pretty much, if they're right, it, it, it's everything. If blockchain is the future of everything, if Web 3.0 goes the way that they expect it to, this will absolutely upend the typical way that we think of uh, our online presence and how we communicate, how we pay for things, how we finance things, how we do business, how we live our social lives, how we elect our leaders or decide things in a political way, how we are entertained, how we're educated, how we worship, dare I say, everything will be affected. And curious to me, you know, because I, I was just talking about chat GPT and I see Ben Shapiro just recently did a, a little short that he posted to Facebook explaining that he and his daughter were playing around with it. And there's all kinds of fun things you can do with chat GPT. Chat GPT is a, a area of computing and networking and decentralized intelligence that has an ethics problem. It has a morality problem to solve. More specifically, what ethics, what morality will constrain ChatGPT or Web 3.0 or decentralized financing or cryptocurrency, all of the above? What morality will prevail? And as 
the folks thinking about that problem or those problems, I think it's one problem, but they would say these are you know, related, distinct problems. Uh, as they talk around the factors to contend with, it's not just international banking systems or globalists like George Soros. It's not just uh, you know the deep state types or the establishment politicians and political parties. It's not just old media and what it has to say, whether it's well-informed or it's misinforming about how this works, what this will do if it works. The, the trouble as they talk around this problem of ethics and morality and all of these uh, cutting-edge technologies that were right on the verge of seeing go prime time and live, they have to deal with human nature in a general sense. They have to deal with the question of what will man choose based on his nature? Is man free to choose? And if so, what will he choose when he has the opportunity to? Now, Moloch, they don't actually treat as a real person, a real being. Uh, They talk about him in very similar terms to how Jordan Peterson talks about God very often as a kind of psychological projection in a very union way. Now, uh, I would say that's how it starts, but in the end, maybe the the greatest lie the devil ever told was that he doesn't exist. And they think they're talking about this psychological projection, but Moloch was actually a fallen angel. He was actually a being who rebelled along with Lucifer, was thrown out of heaven along with a third of the heavenly angels when they lost the war against Michael and his angels. You know, what they might find as they go down this road of fascination with Moloch as a psychological projection is that Moloch is not just real in an abstract way, but that Moloch is a spiritual being who gets power as people are uh, making sacrifices to him. You know, they touch on this briefly. The majority of the hour and 40 uh, 40 minutes almost, uh, the majority of that time is dedicated to the materialistic, scientific materialism approach to what do we see. But interestingly, I mean, if you start talking psychological projections, you don't see the psychological projections. You see the results. You see that somebody has a look on their face or they're standing a certain way or their body language shows that they're happy, sad, angry, depressed, fill in the blank. So we're, we are kidding ourselves even to suppose that sticking to psychology somehow frees us to explore the material world only. Um, no. Psychology at its root, the, the root words that make up what we call psychology have to do with the study of the soul. So you have to have a soul to study it, and therefore you are affirming that there is the spirit. And if we have a spirit that can't be seen, but the effects can be seen, well, then I reason that God also is a spirit. And just because we can't see him, that doesn't mean we don't deduce 
that he exists by what he has affected, by his works, general revelation. And of course, men, as Paul writes in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, men suppress the truth about God, which is made plain. It's evident. It's written on their hearts. It is written in creation. We suppress it because we want to be wise in our own eyes. And even if they have uh, a kind of token admission that man is not inherently good and you need to know that, you need to know that um, when it comes to how you build out these systems, these decentralized systems, even if they they say, yeah, 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 we know, what do they do with that information in their own case, in their own particular context? Uh, are they turning to Jesus? I, it doesn't doesn't look like it. I don't hear any mention of that. But then what, what's so fascinating to me, what's so very curious to me, as they're talking about what's needed to combat the effect of Moloch or tendencies in us, which are Moloch-y, as they say, they, they talk about someone who would have authority over all of us and tell us all to sit down. You know, and the analogy is given, you know, imagine a whole bunch of people are filling this football stadium and some people in the front row get excited and they stand up. Now the people behind them can't see, so they stand up and the people behind them can't see. And now they stand up and now everybody stands up. And until people start to sit down, everybody's going to be standing up for the rest of the game or else they're not going to get to watch the game. And so they, they posit that this is a kind of dysfunctional competition it is a failure to coordinate our efforts that results in all of us being just a little bit more miserable. And sometimes it takes the form of deadly and destructive behavior that is lose-lose. It's not helping anybody really. And what do we want instead? We want a win-win. But in order to have a win-win, you have to have someone with authority who will not themselves abuse that authority and corrupt themselves and corrupt you in how they wield the authority. You, you need someone who is good and someone who is wise and someone who knows what we should all do next and can tell us, everybody, let's sit down or whatever the equivalent is. You know, if you gave that power to any man, then immediately they would be tempted to let it go to their heads and they would become Molaki. They would abuse the power. And what I don't hear them saying is, we need God. That, that's who God is. That's what God does. The reason we are following after Moloch is because we don't follow God. I don't hear them saying that. They're not putting it together. But they're right on the cusp of admitting it based on how they have followed the logical progression to this point. So that's a, that's a very curious thing to note. And also, it's not necessarily a good sign so long as the commitment is to reject God, to reject God's authority. Now, it's curious. She she says a thing, Liv Boeri says a thing, you know, with regards to some of what recommends this idea of Moloch as a constant to explain human, I, I, the word I would use being a student of Christian theology, which is the only theology properly, everybody else is just pretending. What I would say is human depravity, the problem of man's sinful nature. But 
without using that language. She says, you know, what's useful, what's so useful about Moloch is that he is a very old character, an old figure. And the ancient Canaanites, they would want him to bless their fortunes so much that they would sacrifice their own children to him. And that's self-destructive. That's not necessary. That's a, that's a toxic form of competitiveness that actually ends up destroying us in the end. So they admit, they, they recognize that this sinful nature ends in self-destruction, in death. They see that, even though they put it in different language. But that's not enough. That's close. I mean, you're, you're so close. It's like, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's like watching kids on an Easter egg hunt. And you say, okay, you're getting warmer, warmer, warmer. Oh, man, you're so hot right now. You are so close to the hidden Easter egg. And then they start wandering off. And you're like, where are you going? Colder, colder, colder. And they just keep walking. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Except here, the Easter egg is God. And this is uh, where we see the fulfillment of us becoming wise in our own eyes, men who suppress the truth through their unrighteousness because their deeds are dark. They love darkness because their deeds are dark. This is where we see the fulfillment of what is said about them by the Apostle Paul. They become wise in their own eyes and their foolish hearts are darkened and God gives them up to a reprobate mind, to futile thinking, as in unproductive, as in it will not get from point A to point B. It will always be blocked from getting to point B so long as you're more in love with your pride than you are with eternal life on God's terms. So it's a very, very curious thing. You know, she gives a couple of examples of what this looks like. One is nuclear proliferation. There are now so many nuclear weapons in the world that we could destroy all life on planet Earth several times over just by one country launching nukes and everyone else following suit. And so why did we do that? Uh, why? <laughs> how did we get here and how do we back up? Well, nobody wants to back up because as soon as they back up, like Ukraine did, their country gets invaded and they have no, uh, apart from the United States and our NATO allies jumping in and giving them weapons and resources and technology, diplomatic support, economic support. Apart from that, apart from that, uh, all of a sudden, they are annexed by Russia. Or in Taiwan's case, they're annexed by China. Or in Israel's case, they're overrun by Arab nations roundabout. Nobody wants to be the first one to back up because as soon as they do, somebody else, their neighbor, is going to do the Moloch-y thing. And what solves that problem? At the risk of putting perhaps too fine a point on it, all that solves that problem is the grace of God. Period. Full stop. That's it. That's all. That, it really is that simple. And the only reason we don't want it to be that simple is because accepting something that seems so foolish is a humbling thing. And we're proud. And the irony is the very wisest option we could choose is just that simple. Whoever confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord will be saved. Now, you say that. You say, okay, well, I, you know, I can say Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Ah, yes, but all of you, the whole of you has to say it, not just your lips. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, God says at one point. And that does not fool him, and that won't get it done. That's just hypocrisy. So it has to be genuine. It has to be from the inside out. It has to be in our hearts and in our minds and subsequently on our lips and in our hands and under our feet. Otherwise, we're a ticking time bomb, period. DeFi won't solve it if the problem is less the particular people who are the elites who run the show right now, you know, like we've internalized this idea that the wealthy are corrupt, but the poor people, ah, they, you know, they're, they're inherently good. Mm-mm. No, no, they're not. Poor people are not inherently good. Rich people are not inherently bad necessarily either, but it's hard for rich people to be decent. They have a lot to lose as they see it. In some sense, they've already lost the most important thing, though, their soul. If their riches are more important to them than God. You've you've traded what is terribly uncertain, unreliable, finite, limited, perishable, for what is infinite, eternal, essential, priceless. If you're willing to say it is written or everything that I once counted as so very precious, I now esteem as filthy rags compared to the great blessing of knowing my Savior. You've traded something that you can't keep anyways for what you can't lose. You know, this reminds me of the famous quote from Jim Elliot, missionary who was martyred trying to bring the gospel along with his Christian friends, his Christian missionary friends, to unreached peoples in South America. Jim Elliot, before he was martyred, once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So these guys, though, the bankless shows, guys, and Liv Boiry, very smart, very, very smart. They've thought about this a lot, a lot, a lot in depth. And it will affect everything. They're right. But they admit you can't have unlimited decentralization. There has to be some central accountability, almost like a judge. And this judge has to be morally good and incorruptible, almost holy. And this judge has to rule in an impartial way, not swayed, not bribed, not threatened, not manipulated. This judge has to be incorruptible. And actually, this judge has to be powerful enough to enforce his commands or give consequences that are motivating based on whether his orders are followed. What they describe is either Christ or Antichrist, and there is no third option. Those are the only two options. And if they don't choose Christ, then I think this is actually how we get Antichrist. I I do. If we don't choose Christ here, this is how we get Antichrist. And this is how the gentleman from Africa 
wearing the Jesus Saves t-shirt in the Mall of America all of a sudden is barred. He is barred from buying, selling, trading without the mark of the beast. Not for no reason have Christians for decades been muttering privately, sometimes publicly, about how these technologies and these trends and the transition from positive to neutral to negative world could lead to the rise of the Antichrist. Not for no reason have Christians been saying, you put a microchip in somebody's head or maybe even on their hand, you make that the storage for their wallet, their identity, their medical records, all of their secrets, all of their passwords. You do that and you have the kill switch. You have the ability to bar them from society entirely if they upset this desire for peace and equality apart from God. And that, my friends, I think exactly I think that's exactly what's about to happen. I think that's exactly what we're going to see. And it doesn't mean that there's no good that can be done. We cannot grow weary in doing what is good. If we grow weary in doing what is good, then what will we be doing? We will be sinning, either by omission or commission. No. Do not fear man who can only kill the body and then has nothing more he can do to you. Fear God. And then you'll find that you have wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when he asks, let him believe and not doubt. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. With that, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.